From WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University, I'm Byron Williams, and this is The Public Morality. Today, on The Public Morality, James Cole of the Manhattan Institute joins me to discuss the impeachment and near removal of President Andrew Johnson. Are there instructive lessons for America from the saga of the nation's 17th president? Coming up on The Public Morality. Welcome to The Public Morality. During his impeachment trial on May 26, 1868, the Senate failed to convict President Andrew Johnson on two counts, each by a single vote. And for as much as the impeachment inquiry of Donald Trump is juxtaposed with the impeachment of Bill Clinton and resignation of Richard Nixon, it may be the impeachment of Johnson that bears the closest similarity to the present moment. Joining me to discuss the impeachment of Johnson and its similarities with that of President Trump is James Cole. Cole is a contributor to the City Journal, which is produced by the Manhattan Institute, a think tank located in New York City. James Cole, welcome to The Public Morality. Oh, thanks for having me on, Byron. Uh, Let's begin by giving us uh, a a thumbnail sketch of President Andrew Johnson and what led up to impeachment, if you could. So President Andrew Johnson um, is not recognized by historians as by any stretch of the imagination even close to a great president. He is not even recognized as an average president. Um, one of the things that uh, worked against President Johnson is that he really became an obstacle to the majority party in Congress's plan for reconstruction following the Civil War. Andrew Johnson, um, from those listeners that don't know, becomes president when Lincoln is assassinated in April of 1865 just days after the end of the Civil War. And now you have the aftermath of the Civil War now being dealt with um, by, by the nation. Uh, and two paramount questions being addressed by our country. Um, what do we do with the states now that they're either being readmitted or realigned with the Union? And what do we do with former slaves? Um, how, do we, how do we deal with the institution of slavery or the, ram- the immediate ramifications of slavery, and how do, we, how do we kind of adjust society, adjust life, and for a large part of the country, um, adjust a way of life and a labor force and, and a, you know, a whole way of life that had completely changed uh, in the country over the course of the, of the preceding four and five years. So what specifically um, were the actual charges against Johnson? terms of impeachment so there was a total of 11 articles filed against uh against andrew johnson eight of them had to deal with the firing of edwin stanton who was the um, secretary of war he had been appointed by president lincoln and that's johnson's kind of main defense you know i didn't hire the guy uh lincoln did um the three other articles dealt with the the real severed and deterior uh, the deterioration of the relationship between Congress and the president. Things like ridiculing and hatred against the Congress was actually one of the articles. 
And it's pretty pretty interesting to kind of read that uh, in the light of the contemporary relationship between the president and Congress. Um, but but basically, most of the charges were leveled against the firing of Edwin Stanton um, because Republicans in Congress had passed the law the year before Johnson was impeached called the Tenure of Office Act. And it's kind of one of those things that a lot of people remember from high school history class. They're, they remember hearing the Tenure of Office Act, but might not remember exactly what it was. And the Tenure of Office Act basically was a law that said that anybody that was um, appointed and got their job with the approval of the United States Senate confirming them, well, the United States Senate had to approve their firing. So it was really trying to tie the hands of the president in terms of the advice that he was getting from, in this case, uh, a member of the cabinet. And Edwin John, uh, um, I'm sorry, uh, Andrew Johnson does break the law. Um, subsequently, about 50 years later, the law is declared unconstitutional. But in real time, Andrew Johnson is facing this Congress that sees him as an obstacle because he is an obstacle to Reconstruction, um, and they file these articles against him. Point of fact, though, it's also fair to say that regardless of how one, however one feels about Andrew Johnson, that also Edward Stanton, Edward Stanton was also working with the Republicans to sort of undermine uh, right. what Johnson wanted to do with Reconstruction. Is that correct, sir? Yeah, I mean, J- Johnson absolutely had reason to fire um, Edwin Stanton. Um, Ed- Edwin Stanton, you know, was appointed by a Republican president, Abraham Lincoln. So it's not, you know, um, out of the ordinary for him to kind of have the sensibilities of not the person that he works for, but the person that hired him, and, and John- uh, which, a- a- as you point out, was a Republican. And, and Johnson was a Democrat. Talk about that for a moment, because people may look at, it would be inconceivable now that you'd have a, a Republican president, Abraham Lincoln, and then have a Democratic Vice President Andrew Johnson in the 21st century. So could you explain how that came about as well, if you don't mind? Right. Um, well, well, before I get to how it came out, I mean, it, it's not completely inconceivable. If you remember, um, I, I believe that John Kerry considered um, John McCain, McCain yeah. on the ticket. Uh, so um, it's not completely and, – and John McCain considered putting – Joe Lieberman on the ticket in 2008. So while today in 2019 it might seem completely out of the ordinary, there have been some occasions where it at least been um, entertained, for lack of a better word. But uh, if we can go back to the idea that that would actually come to fruition, like it did in the 1864 election, this was a little bit, um, I don't want to say completely out of Abraham Lincoln's hands, but it was put to the Republican Party who they would select in 1864 as the running mate for Abraham Lincoln. And in a convention um, that was held to select their nominee for president and vice president, um, as we all know, Abraham Lincoln gets renominated by the Republican Party, and the Republicans pick a Southern Democrat, Andrew Johnson, to replace Hannibal Hamlin, who had been the, um, the vice president in Lincoln's first term. And the reasons why they pick them make perfect sense on Election Day in November of 2000, I'm sorry, uh, uh, 1864. They're reaching out to the South. They are reaching out to the Democratic Party. And Johnson fits both of those bills. He's from Tennessee, which is a state that left the Union. And he's a Democrat, 
which is obviously the opposition party. And Johnson is given specific deference in 1864, largely because he's the only United States senator who, when his state left out of the 11 states to become part of the, uh, the Confederacy, he stayed with the Union. So he was kind of like a senator without a state. And, and out of deference for that kind of bold move, or what was considered a bold move, um, he was given some special deference by the party. Uh, so what, what was looked at as a gesture on Election Day in 1864 becomes an absolute nightmare for the Republican Party on the morning of April 15, 1865, where now you have Lincoln obviously dies as a result of uh, the gunshot from the night before, and Johnson, who had been vice president, now obviously ascends to become the 17th president of the United States. Now, in, in, in the piece that you wrote uh, uh, online, um, you, you wrote that the Johnson impeachment was, quote, a partisan endeavor uh, resulting uh, from the majority party's power in both chambers. Right. Couldn't, couldn't we say that, at least in the initial phases, that all impeachments thus far, we've only, we've only had three, it, um, and if you count Nixon, um, four, uh, sure. Couldn't we say that all, all impeachments and, and, and the origins of all impeachments are partisan in the beginning, at least in the beginning? Well, I was writing um, about Johnson's impeachment, and frankly, we could say about, about Clinton's impeachment, and I kind of teach them kind of similar. Uh-huh. I'm, not necessarily ta- I'm, I'm not necessarily talking about the articles that are filed against them. Mm-hmm. I'm not necessarily talking about what was happening in the moment. Mm-hmm. I'm talking about how history has largely treated them. And history has largely treated the only two impeachments that we've ever had in our history as partisan endeavors. And if we could put the if we could put the articles that are filed, you know, these kind of charges that are filed aside for a minute, because, hey, breaking the law is very serious. In in the case of Andrew Johnson, um, he broke the law and obviously the law becomes unconstitutional later. But he broke the law in the case of Bill Clinton. He breaks the law, right? Perjury, obstruction of justice are actual crimes. But if we put the law aside just for a brief moment, the reason why history, I contend in the article, treats them as partisan affairs is because of the vote breakdown. And when it largely becomes a vote breakdown where it's Democrats versus Republicans, yes, we could say, you know, it is it is it is a partisan endeavor and impeachment is might maybe designed to be. Hamilton would argue that. But in terms of, of how we as historians kind of record this, we say, wow, impeachment is largely a partisan endeavor in these two circumstances. Now, you brought up Nixon. That is the one example where it's not a partisan endeavor. And what does it lead to? It doesn't lead to impeachment. It leads to a resignation. So you have... You know, I, I don't mean to upset, you know, the, the Nixon fans out there that listen to your program, but you kind of have in Nixon this kind of perfect example of how impeachment is designed to work, where the charges are so serious and so grave and so apparent that you have members of the same party of the president coming to the president and say, you're losing us, too, and Take what you will from those examples and kind of apply it to the contemporary setting. And I don't like to do that because I'm, I'm a historian. Right. But if we use the example of the Johnson, Clinton, and Nixon 
kind of roads to impeachment, there's only one of them that history is recording as a nonpartisan endeavor, and that's Nixon. Now, with that said, I think you certainly make a great point. With that said, though, the, the, the bipartisanship in the Nixon case, isn't, wasn't that a result? Didn't that really start to gain momentum after the release of the tapes? Because prior to that, you still had some people yeah. still on the fence. So even, so even that sure. bipartisanship required the tsunami, I'm calling the tsunami of the tapes. Yeah, I mean, you, 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 make, a, you make a great point. And it's once more and more evidence is mounting against Nixon. I mean, the Republicans are knocking on the door of the White House four days after the Supreme Court decides that he has to turn over the tapes. Um, in, in, terms of, uh, in terms of our contemporary setting, we don't necessarily have that. We don't have the idea that the courts have ruled that something has to be done. So now you have more than just a partisan endeavor in the Congress. Let's, we can go back to Andrew Johnson. You have more than just a partisan endeavor in the Congress where the Congress decides you broke a law that we kind of passed to set you up, and you're mad at us, which are basically the articles against Andrew Johnson, now you have the courts weighing in. And the courts saying, turn over evidence. You have more than just one branch of government, you know, for lack of a better phrase, going after another branch of government. You have now the courts involved as well. So, so in one sense... Um, you 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 raise another point though that that if we are going to uh, live by the strict letter of the law, but given given the fact that impeachment is a political process, but if we're going to live by the strict letter, Andrew Johnson did break a law, albeit a law that was deemed um, unconstitutional in 1926, but he did break a law, and as you stated. Bill Clinton did break a law. Perjury, by every every estimate I've looked at, breaks a law is is a, is, sure. is illegal. But at the same time, because it's political, are we saying? And, and I'm asking you as a historian: are, are we saying that there are times where the president is in fact above the law if these illegal violations should not have been impeached? impeachable offenses. Well, I, and I don't mean this to sound partisan. Uh, um, when people say that impeachment is a political process, I think people are saying that quite often to say that it, it could be less than a crime. Kind of saying, in, in the case of, of President Trump, where you have an example of the two charges or articles that are filed against him, neither of them are specifically talking about the breaking of, of a specific law. In the impeachments of, in the impeachment inquiry into Richard Nixon, in the impeachment of um, Bill Clinton, and in the impeachment of Andrew Johnson, in all of those cases, it was the breaking of a law. And you had mentioned earlier, well, this is a political process. And I think people say that as if, as if there's like a standard that is less than breaking a law, if we could put them in degrees. And, and I think history has kind of shown us correctly, and I think for, for kind of the salvation of the structure, that it's a higher threshold, not a lower threshold, than the breaking of a law. The law has to be so grave, and the law has to be 
such a circumstance where we would only even go down this path three other times in history. There are people literally all over this country facing the accusation of crimes, and they may be guilty or not guilty, probable cause, and we apply all of those standards. But the fact that we have only done this three other times in history sets it up as a higher threshold than the idea of, well, the political process, as if it's an election or if it's a campaign. Um, I think that the threshold needs to be really high, and I would say this today, and I would say this 5, 10, 8, 12 years from now, where we might face this again, and it's not the same president, and it's not the same party, and it's not the same situation, but the roles are reversed. We need to be very careful how we go down this road. We use the example of Nixon. You talk about the gathering of overwhelming evidence. That's the road to the right impeachment. And that's what I was trying to say in the article that I wrote in City Journal, where when it becomes a partisan endeavor, history treats it that way. History treats it as, look at the vote breakdown. This is Republicans going after Democratic presidents. In the two impeachments that we've had, Bill Clinton and Andrew Johnson, and do we have that now? Did we have that in Richard Nixon? Did we have that? I mean, the votes tell us the story. If you're just joining us, I'm speaking with James Cole. He is a contributor to the City Journal, which is produced by the Manhattan Institute in New York City. Jim, if in fact Johnson was impeached for his political views, or more, sp- uh, 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 more specifically, um, let's just say he had a vision of uh, Reconstruction that was not consistent with that of the Radical Republicans— I'm hearing you say those things should not be should not be considered impeachable offenses for the good of the republic. Am I am I understanding you correctly? Well, I, I it, it's almost tough to say what should and shouldn't be impeachable. Um, it's kind of what I'm saying, but I want to put like an asterisk. Sure. I mean, every member of the House of Representatives today in 1998, in you know 1868, kind of kind of gets to make that decision, and and. We can't get into their heads. Obviously, they're not going to get up in front, of a, in front of a microphone and say, I'm just defending the president because he's a Republican. And Democrats are not going to say, I'm just against the president because I'm a Democrat. They're, they're not going to say that. So, so, so it's very hard to impugn kind of overriding motives into what each of them are doing. I'm, I'm suggesting the idea that even the appearance of it being a partisan endeavor is very, very dangerous. I, I don't know what would be the catalyst for a member of the House voting for or against impeachment. It could be, you know, th- their own election, which is part of the process. It could be, you know, that, that they really do think that the matter before the House of Representatives and then ultimately before the Senate is going to be something that is a threat to the republic. Um, I don't mean to impugn each individual member. I'm just saying that the vote breakdown creates an appearance where this is kind of something that's normal. This has become part of now the kind of partisan divide in our country where impeachment is something that we do. And it is, it is, history does not show us that. It shows us that when we do it, we tend to shrink back from that. Uh, there's a, uh, uh, a, a story about um, then Chief of Staff for former President Bill Clinton, Erskine Bowles, uh, visited uh, Speaker Newt Gingrich 
and and they had a relationship and and um the chief of staff Erskine Bowles asked the speaker why are you doing this why are you proceeding with impeaching president clinton right. and speaker gingrich says because we can i go right. i go back even further that and this was a, this was about uh, judici- uh somebody on the on the federal bench I think it was 1970. Uh, then Minority Leader Joe Ford said, basically said, um, right. I- impeachment is whatever the House of Representatives say it is. And then the Constitution gives the House of Representatives sole responsibility for impeachment. Uh, right. w- how do you square those things? So, so those are all all factual. I mean, the House of Representatives, Newt Gingrich saying that to Erskine Bowles, you know. That could have been, and I don't mean to put words in people's mouths, you know, Nancy Pelosi saying that to, you know, Mick Mulvaney, you know, the idea that we have this power. The the amazing thing is, yes, that may very well be true. But if it is a power that a party uses against the other party, one thing that we need to look at is why don't we do it more? And I'm not suggesting that we do do it more. I'm saying that over the course of time, over the course of the past 230-plus years, impeachment has kind of been this thing that we don't really do that often for, for very good reason. We don't want to have it look like there's instability in government. As, as unstable as government kind of has been or is, for the most part, the people that are there are going to be there until the next election, and that is the way the system is designed. It's, it's designed to be this rare tool. You know, keep in mind when when Gerald Ford said in 1970, as as you pointed out, it's whatever the House of Representatives says it is, an impeachable offense. But then over the course of the next, what, you know, 49 years, we use it once. Now, there have been many, many times, and and even in that one occasion, I'm sorry, uh, close to twice, because now you include Richard Nixon in that. Over the course of of that, you know, nearly half century, you have plenty of times where the opposition party controls the White House when the opposing party controls controls the uh, the House of Representatives. You know, in the last in the last two years of George W. Bush's term, in the last six years of of the tenure of Barack Obama, you have you have you have the opposition party controlling that chamber. It is not a tool, and I'm not suggesting that it is, but it shouldn't even appear to be a tool that is used by one party against the other. I think that's, that the thing that works kind of against, you know, Democrats and, and the impeachment move today is the fact that we have impeachment, so to speak, has become a little bit normalized because we've heard it so much. We've heard the word impeachment used more times in the past two and a half years than we have in the past 200 on, on many different occasions. And when you hear it so much, you start to think that this is a normal process. Now, that might be something that benefits a group that doesn't like this president. But if we're normalizing impeachment, that hurts the next president, the president after that, and the president going forward. So for me, it's more of a process issue beyond just what are the charges, what are the articles, what is the evidence, what is the process? If the process is this is something that we're going to talk about often 
it kind of loses the sting. I think you make a great point that in a republic, um, the outcome, and these are my words, uh, the outcome in a republic is not as important as how you got to the outcome. Right. Um, right. The, the contrarian argument would be, uh, you know, Jim Cole, you're absolutely right. But where were those? Where were the? Where were the Jim Coles of the world uh, when Newt Gingrich was yeah. uh, committed to impeaching Bill Clinton when he knew he didn't have the votes in the Senate to convict? And he sort of said, "Because we can." And does that? And so, where was that voice? Because as, as you pointed out and alluded to, this stuff is cyclical. So whatever you do now, yeah. you need to be prepared for the cyclical reaction at some later date. But to me, Byron, it's not a contrarian argument. It reinforces my point. So so it's not just the Andrew Johnson impeachment. I mean, I, I wrote that article largely to talk about Edmund Ross, who's this Kansas Well, I was going to get – I was going to – I was about to ask you. That was my yeah. next question. Who is Edmund Ross? I wanted you to explain that as well. So, <laughs> so, so Edmund Ross is a senator in Kansas. Uh, he had just been elected. Um, it ju- just – Basically, he's in his second year of his first term in the U.S. Senate when he has to vote on whether he's going to convict Andrew Johnson of the of uh, at least one of the charges against him in the United States Senate. Um, and uh, Ross is a Republican, and he casts his vote against the conviction of Andrew Johnson. So he votes not guilty. He's actually one of ten Republican senators that vote not guilty. Um, regarding a Democratic presence, or we put this in kind of political terms. And Andrew Johnson escapes, escapes conviction and removal from office by a single vote. So any one of those 19 senators who voted not guilty um, in regards to uh, uh, and the articles against Andrew Johnson could be looked at as kind of the savior of Andrew Johnson's presidency. But Edmund Ross holds kind of a special place because, well, well, for the most part, because he's included in a book of senators that John Kennedy writes about Profiles in 1956. Courage. Profiles and Courage. And he basically says that his vote, while in real time, hurt him politically. He did not get reelected. He never served again in the United States Senate. And when Edmund Ross was casting his vote, uh, Edmund Ross literally thinks to himself, uh, I felt when I was casting this vote as if I was looking into my political grave, and he was. He put his own political future, according to to how Kennedy writes it, um, he puts his own political future uh, backseat to the to the, the the structure of our government, to the needs of the republic. There are other things going on as well. Uh, you know, Republicans didn't want Ben Wade to become the president of the United States, but largely we look at the vote of Edmund Ross as party politics being put aside in favor of kind of quote unquote doing the right thing, which we see less and less frequently in our politics today. And Edmund Ross, a few years after his vote, says something about his vote um, and why he cast it. Uh, I, I put it in the article. He said, in a larger sense, the independence of the executive office was on trial. If the president must step down upon insufficient proofs and from partisan considerations, the offices of president would be degraded and ever after subordinate to the legislative will. So the idea that 
you had in 1868, the legislature, the Congress, didn't like the way that the president was was uh, vetoing their bills. He votes. He veto. He uses the veto 29 times uh, in his you know almost full tenure as one term as president. Um, and he really is, as I mentioned before, an obstacle to, to their to their plans for the country and their plans for reconstruction. And it's not just what he said, what he does, it's what he says. He's a, an absolute racist. Blatantly, he is campaigning against the Republican, you know, policies that would help uh, newly freed slaves, largely because uh, he thought at most African Americans would be second class citizens at best in this country. And he's and, he, and, he, and he's speaking that way out in public and in and in addresses that he's given. So. Republicans have cause to not like him or not support um, his continuation as president. But Edmund Ross was saying that this being this partisan endeavor uh, would be really destructive to the structure of of the uh, of the American government, essentially, in the, in the in the branch system that we have. We heard a lot about checks and balances over the past few weeks and through impeachment trials. Um, Edmund Ross was talking about the idea of separation of powers, where the which is also a constitutional principle. And 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 I want to I want to mention this to your to your listeners as well. We've we've been hearing a lot about which Republican senators will cross the line, you know, uh, between their support of President Trump and vote guilty. Well, history has shown us that in the two Senate trials that we have had um, in relation to uh, presidents that have been on trial in the chamber. There has never been a single vote. There's never been a single guilty vote cast by a member of the same party as the president. So the question that some journalists might be wanting to ask, in addition to what Republicans are going to vote guilty, the more historical analogy here is what Democrats are going to vote not guilty in, the, in a contemporary setting. Now, now earlier uh, you, you, you stated that um – there were two sort of overriding questions um, at, at the assassination of uh, President Lincoln that Johnson inherited when he became president. One being, how, uh, how will the states in rebellion be readmitted into the Union? And the second was, how are we going to um, fully integrate um, ex-slaves? Yes. Uh, could you, could one posit, that uh, the two overarching questions today, it, it, depending on how you understand this current impeachment inquiry, one, and I'd like to have you respond to both of these questions. One, should the notion of the executive and legislative branches uh, be seen as co-equal in name only? And two, is there a corresponding relationship between our constitutional commitment and our political allegiance? So I, I think in, in terms of in terms of the um, second question, I, I don't think that that there's a divide. I mean, the, the U.S. Constitution talks a lot about politics. I mean, they don't use the word, but the fact that you know, when when I use the word politics, when I speak to my students or I speak to community groups about these things, I don't use it necessarily as a dirty word, and I don't think that the founding generation thought of it as a dirty word either. Politics to me, is the idea that you make a decision and now the public gets to hold you accountable for that decision. So whether it's impeachment, whether it is 
you know, a bill that is passed, whether it is a proposed amendment and how people vote on them, you know, any of these things within the Constitution, all of them, we could say, go back to that kind of constitutional slash political um, analogy or, or divide that, that you're referring to. And they're all left to be accountable to us, the voters. Um, in terms of whether we should still think of them as co-equal branches of government, while today we're making a we're, we're debating about the legislative and the executive branch, they are not co-equal branches of government, largely because of the third branch, which we haven't spoken about at all. The courts, our federal courts, especially our Supreme Court, is is not co-equal to the other branches of government. If they get to tell the other branches of government what they're doing is unconstitutional, then they're elevated above the other branches. Now, it used to be that they would sparingly use that check on the political branches. Today, it's routine that the courts say that something is unconstitutional or constitutional. Essentially, almost every law that is passed we seem to almost be waiting, whether it's at the federal level or the state level. We seem to kind of wait and say, well, what has the Supreme Court said? As if we can't have any interpretation of the Constitution until the Supreme Court speaks about it. And that's judicial supremacy. So while we're having this debate, and, and obviously our topic is about impeachment, which are largely Article One, Congress and Article Two, president kind of fights, you have this other kind of, uh, you know, looming tower here, and it's the courts. And that's where you start to see even more power being vested. When you look at, um, and let's include uh, the, the impeachment inquiry of uh, President Trump in, in, the, in this question, and let's leave out Richard Nixon, since Richard Nixon wasn't technic technically was not impeached. Right. So we'll leave, we'll leave Nixon out and put Trump in. How about that? Sure. Has there been, in your estimate, a moment where the party leading the impeachment charge was not guilty of an overreach in your in your uh, estimation? Was not guilty of an overreach? Yes. So, I mean, as a historian, it's very, very hard to talk in contemporary times. So we'll leave Trump um, out then. We'll just we'll leave Trump out. Was I mean... I, I, just the fact that they're using a power that, that, they, that they've been allocated, I think one word that we haven't used, and I don't use when I speak about impeachment, I didn't put it in my article, is the word unconstitutional. So is it the power of, you know, the majority party in Congress, whether you're talking about, you know, whether you're talking about Johnson, whether you're talking about Clinton, whether you're talking about Donald Trump, is it the power of the majority party to impeach a president? Yes, that is the power. That is constitutional. What, what we start to see, and we talk about this a lot when it comes to constitutional questions, instead of using words like constitutional and unconstitutional, we use words like unprecedented. We use words like, but it's never been done before like this or like that. So we start to, to, to frame what looks like a constitutional question, and we kind of alter it midway through the question, and we change it into, well, yeah, they're allowed to do it, but it hasn't been done like this before. So quite often, I'll, I'll, I'll tell my students, let's just ask the question if it's constitutional. Does Nancy Pelosi have the power to 
put a vote out to the United States House of Representatives um, about impeachment? The answer is yes. That is constitutional. That is that is not exercising more power than they've been given. But but we need to reverse the question too for the other for the other chamber. I make sure to point out to people that would celebrate the House using their power to say, you know, in 2016, when Mitch McConnell, as the majority leader, said that we're not going to vote on Merrick Garland, that was also constitutional control of that chamber. So so we have to make sure that we're we're kind of making the same claims when they work for a point of view that we have and, and when they work against the point of view that we have. I have never said, and, and I think that people who have read the Constitution um, are not necessarily saying that what the House is doing, and we could even put Nixon in there as well, what the House has done or is doing is unconstitutional in the same way that we talk about the other chamber. What they're doing is constitutional-wide because majority controls those chambers. So they get to control what witnesses come forward. They get to control, and, and you even saw this with, with Republicans in the judiciary and in the intel committees, where they were saying, we haven't done it like this before. They didn't say you're not allowed to do it. And, and that's a really, really important distinction, because sometimes we can confuse what we don't want to happen to what's not allowed to happen. And those are two different things. Mm. How, how do you view it? And I, I, I want to I, I elevate it uh, above... Um... President Trump and the House Democrats. I'm going to, I'm going to elevate it to the executive branch, legislative branch. For you, what is the line of demarcation where, let's say, the 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 executive branch is free to ignore, let's say, the subpoena of the legislative branch? Is that a concern? Should that be a concern? Is that much ado about nothing? How do you see that um, in in the Notion of checks and balances. So, I, I mean, it, 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 it's obviously a concern when uh, one branch is looking for information to exercise their constitutional power and the other branch is resisting that. I think, though, it depends on the issue that they're resisting it over. There are lots of things that kind of overlap between the president and the Congress, right? Um, uh, lots of overlap of those powers, what we've heard and, and the phrase that you've used and I've used checks and balances where there is where there is much less overlap is in foreign policy in issues relating to dealing with foreign leaders for example so the president is given almost exclusive authority it's not the president and the congress shall negotiate treaties the senate gets to approve treaties they don't negotiate them it's not the senate and the and it's not the president and the congress that shall receive ambassadors. It's the president that shall receive ambassadors. So when it comes to kind of like planting a flag and saying we're going to resist a subpoena by another branch of government, in this case the Congress, well, this is the flag to plant. Because the president, in the case of our contemporary issue, I know you want to not necessarily make it specific about President Trump, but if, if I can go back to that just for a second, if, if the president is going to resist the subpoena, it's going to, and, and, and it, it have any type of validity in the resistance, it's going to be resisting a subpoena that deals with a power that the president has almost exclusive power over, and that is 
dealing with foreign leaders and negotiating with foreign countries. I mean, that is the one for the president to plant the flag over. Now, the danger in that is, does that mean that the president can do anything when it comes to foreign leaders, and then the Congress can never get information? I would argue that it doesn't mean that the president can do anything. It just means you have to figure out another way to get information about the president than to just go to the president and the president's staff. So what if a foreign leader, in this case, that I did feel threatened, I did feel that there was a bribe, that would be really compelling evidence that didn't come from the executive branch. Quite often in criminal cases, we get information, if we move away from you know, presidents and politics for a second and go to our criminal justice system, quite often convictions are rendered not by getting information from the subject that they're investigating, and not even by getting information from the people surrounding the subjects of the investigation. Quite often, we get convictions and get evidence based on everything around that process. So to say that, as has been said quite often, well, then that means that the president can do anything, um, I don't necessarily think that that's the case. Um, it is certainly, if we could circle back, though, um, it is certainly uh, an issue that, that certainly deserves attention, whether the president is now compelled to turn over information. Let's, let's look at the slippery slope of this. If the Congress can ask for information about anything, any interaction with a foreign leader, what foreign leader would ever talk to a president or his staff in the future? You know, the, um, I, you know, the, the irony here, and I think you know this uh, better than I, but the irony here is that you mentioned um, Merrick Garland earlier. Well, yes. well, you know, you know, somewhere lurking in the weeds is a Democratic senator That's right. waiting for the opportunity to do a Merrick Garland do-over. Uh, just, Absolutely. Just as Mitch McConnell was waiting in the weeds when Harry Reid did his version of the nuclear option with sure. with yep. with federal judges. And, Absolutely. And see, and then, I mean, I think this is the larger problem that you're raising. And so now we know that. Um, there was the New Gingrich impeachment that influenced some of the behavior right. of this impeachment. There's going to sure. be a Democratic president who's going to do what President Trump has done, and there's going to be a House, a Republican House of Representatives that's going to be aghast at what this Democratic president did in relation to Donald Trump. It never. Well, that's why. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, that's why the, the that, that's why I'm very careful in in kind of the language that I use. And when people said in 2016 it was unconstitutional for Mitch McConnell to not have a vote on Merrick Garland, then that would mean that a Democratic majority leader on a Republican president with the nominee before them related to the courts couldn't do that either. That would mean that it's also unconstitutional. Now, now the language that we should have been using was Mitch McConnell, you know, if you think that Mitch McConnell shouldn't have been doing this, the language should have been he shouldn't be doing this. Because once you're using language of saying he's not allowed to do it, and then later on you're salivating when your party does it, then you are being disingenuous. If it's not allowed, it's not allowed for everybody. If it's allowed, then it's allowed for everybody. There's no one on earth, you know, who, who has studied these things. And, 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 of course, you have not said this. You have never said that, that Newt Gingrich could not impeach Bill Clinton. He could. The question was whether he should. Yeah. And I think that that's, 
that's the question that goes back to kind of my article, and that's the question that goes back to the Johnson impeachment, and, and we could use those examples from history to kind of look at our situation. No one is questioning whether this Congress can impeach the president, whether they have the power or the votes, because that's essentially what, what we've come to understand that it comes down to. The question is how we look at those examples and say whether whether they should, whether Bill Clinton should have, whether Thaddeus Stevens should have been a proponent of impeachment of Andrew Johnson. I mean, it, it's the should part hmm. where 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 we should be reflecting, not the can they part. And we it, get stuck in the can they part. And, and it, it's sort of what I hear you, what I hear you saying. Uh, th- there's a difference between sort of linear constitutional, unconstitutional, vis-a-vis the spirit of, of our democratic guardrails. And those are two different kinds of conversations. Absolutely. Uh, Absolutely. James Cole, I want to thank you, sir, uh, for joining Byron, Thank you. For joining me today on The Public Morality. This has been a great conversation. We, we've got to have you back. The Public Morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at Byron at publicmorality.org. That's Byron. B-Y-R-O-N at publicmorality.org. Our archive broadcasts are located at soundcloud.com. Just search for Public Morality. You can also find us on iTunes. And my new book, Solitaire, is available on paperback and Kindle on Amazon. The Public Morality is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. For all of us at The Public Morality, I'm Byron Williams.